and thanks for joining me for another episode of the History of Christianity. I'm Bertie Pearson. I'm the rector of Grace Episcopal Church in Georgetown, Texas, and I've also spent the better part of the last decade teaching church history at the Iona School for Ministry and occasionally at the Seminary of the Southwest. It's great to be with you. The prayer of the righteous availeth much. This is the King James Version of the book of James, James 5.16. In the modern translations, it's often something more like the prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. But since the earliest days of Christianity, there's been the sense that if you wanted God to grant you a blessing, whether it be healing or whether it be self-control or whatever it is, it's great to have people praying for you. And so in virtually every Christian tradition, there's a norm of asking people's prayers. You might ask your very devoted grandmother to pray for you. You might ask your priest or your pastor to pray for you. You might ask someone else in church to pray for you. This is something that is so normative in Christianity. It's often just kind of second nature. You have surgery on Wednesday and you say, would you mind remembering me in your prayers? I'm terrified. It's just what we do. And while asking your grandmother's prayers might seem like a very natural thing, to some Christians it seems odd to ask the prayers of Claire of Assisi, or Augustine of Hippo, or any of the great saints of the church. Because after all, unlike your grandmother, they are dead. They are not here with us. They don't exist anymore. Or do they? In the 12th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Mark, Christ is discussing the resurrection of the dead with some Sadducees who don't believe in bodily resurrection. To them this makes no sense and seems bizarre and crazy. And Christ says, As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the story about the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is God, not of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Those saints who have gone before us, that great cloud of witness by which we are surrounded, this is not a great cloud of illustrative examples of uh, biographical data that can help us be better people. This is actually a communion of living beings who are surrounding us, who are praying for us, who are rooting for us, all the saints who have gone before us are are really still with us because they are with God, who is the God not of the dead, but of the living. As the Orthodox Archbishop Paul of Finland points out, it would be strange to think that the prayers of a devout Christian reach God during his temporal life in this world, but not afterward when he is departed and is with Christ. So if your grandmother is very devout, and you want her to pray for you because she has such a strong love of God and a strong, deep friendship with God on this side of the tomb, but you think that on the other side of the tomb, when she's actually with Christ, she's going to be like, not very interested in praying, or her prayers are somehow no longer heard by God, or no longer powerful or effective, or she's no longer righteous or whatever. That's very illogical. So uh, Paul of Finland continues, indeed, epitaphs, from the times of the martyrs, show that from the very beginning of Christianity, those who have departed into the kingdom of God have been asked to pray for those left behind. So 
from the earliest days of Christianity, people have asked the prayers of the saints. People have not believed in the saints as demigods or superheroes or rivals to God who you can go to instead of God. That's pure paganism. And this is the doctrine of the Roman Catholic tradition, the Anglican tradition, my own tradition, the Orthodox tradition, the Lutheran tradition, any tradition that has saints 100% believes that saints are not demigods. You don't say like, "Ah, today I might pray to Jesus, tomorrow I'm going to pray to St. Joseph, and we'll see which one does better for me. That's not how it works at all. So the saints don't have superpowers. They are not gods in and of themselves. They're just people like you and me. In the 14th chapter of Acts, St. Paul and St. Barnabas are in the city of Lystra, and Paul heals a man who had been crippled from birth. And news spreads of this throughout the city, and people are convinced that two of the Greco-Roman gods have come to visit them, that it is Zeus and Hermes, and they are out there working miracles. So they put together a big um, group of oxen to sacrifice, and they are garlanding them with flowers, and they're leading them to the temple, and they're going to hold up Paul and Barnabas on their shoulders and give a big cheer or something like that. And we're told in Acts, this is uh, Acts 14, 14, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, They tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We are mortals just like you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the same way, in John's revelation, when he meets an angel, he falls down before him in this posture of worship, and the angel grabs and he says, no, 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 get up. I'm a fellow servant just like you. Worship God alone. Like, if you think you should be worshiping another creature as God, you have completely lost the plot. In Augustine's City of God, he questions whether any spiritual beings could wish for themselves or only for God the homage of our ceremonies and sacrifices, and the consecration by religious rites of some of our goods or even of ourselves. So Augustine's like, is there any way that a spiritual being who is actually in contact with God, who's not like an evil spiritual being who is revolting against God, could want our worship? And Augustine says, this is in Book 10 of his City of God, if any immortal power loves us as itself, it must wish us to be subject for our own happiness to him in submission to whom it finds its happiness. If it worships God, it cannot wish to be worshipped in place of him. So for Augustine, if you are worshipping a saint as God or as a god, a demigod or whatever, you are actually making that saint crazy. The saint himself is tearing his hair out and saying, no, 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 get up. I am a fellow servant with you. Worship God alone. All that we do in relating to the saints is feel encouraged by their lives, by the holiness that was manifested in their lives, and ask their prayers. So just as you ask your grandma's prayer, you can ask St. Augustine's prayer. Just as you ask your pastor's prayer, you can ask St. Clair's prayer. It's the prayer of the righteous, which is powerful and effective. These are saints who are not living but dead. These God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the living, not of the dead. And so we ask them, pray for us. And that, that's what it is to have a relationship with the saints. It's not asking them to do magic tricks or use their superpowers for our benefit. It's just asking their prayers. 
But, you might say, I have seen old manuals of devotion, or I have seen older works of theology which talk about praying to the saints, not just asking their prayers, but praying to them. And this is entirely true. The tricky thing is, there's an old meaning of prayer, and there is a modern meaning of prayer. So these days, when we talk about prayer, we're talking about what we do to relate to God. It's very rare that you hear prayer used in a different context. In the old days, to pray meant to ask a favor, to beg something. You can uh, stop, a beggar can stop you on the street and say, pray, sir, a copper, or whatever. Like, it's, it just means like asking for something. So praying to the saints literally just means asking the saints prayers, but it sounds very confusing in our modern context. What's even more confusing is that the same old works of theology or old devotional manuals might have a term like worshiping the saints, the worship of the saints. And this sounds like, oh my gosh, here, you've really lost the plot. You are treating the saints as demigods. Worship also had another meaning in those days. So if you approach the mayor of some cities, even to this day in the UK, you would say, hello, your worship. This does not mean, hello, person that I'm confusing with the infinite eternal source of all being. What it means is your worth-ship. I'm acknowledging the worth of this person. So to worship the saints in this old-timey language does not mean confusing them with God. It doesn't mean praying to them as God. It doesn't mean bowing down before them in obeisance as we do to God. It doesn't mean adoring them as God. It just means acknowledging their worth. A contemporary word which uh, works much better is the veneration of the saints. So in this old-timey usage, if you go to a football game and the American flag starts waving, as in obviously in a North American con- or a U.S. context, and they start singing the national anthem and you put your hand over your heart and you sing the national anthem looking at the flag, in the older use of the term, you are acknowledging the worth of the flag, you are worshiping the flag. In no sense does that mean you think this 50-foot piece of nylon is the creator, redeemer, and sustainer of the universe or anything like that. Like This just means that you are acknowledging the importance, the worth, the value symbolically of the flag. It is the veneration of the flag. So we venerate the saints. We venerate sometimes the things that they had or the pieces of their body, which are these kind of still, these examples of their holiness, which we still have with us. We venerate the stories of their lives. We venerate sometimes where they grew up or whatever, but we don't worship them in the sense we worship God. All of this sounds like a slippery slope in English, but fortunately in both Latin and Greek, it's extremely clear. So Greek has these two different words, proskinesis and latreia. Proskinesis is any kind of veneration. It's bowing down, acknowledging the worth of something. When the judge walks into the courtroom and the bailiff says, all rise, and everyone stands up, that's just to acknowledge her worth. That is proskinesis. That is paying your respects to the judge. When a bunch of first graders get together again in an American context and they hang the U.S. flag in the classroom and they put their hands over their hearts and they say the Pledge of Allegiance, they are paying their respects to the nation via the flag. This is proskinesis. This is paying your respects, venerating, acknowledging the worth of. But then 
in Greek, you have Latreia. And this is the literal definition is the worship that is due to God alone. This is adoring God. This is bowing down before God. This is giving our goods that we have in consecration to him. This is giving our time, talent, and treasure. This is giving bread and wine to him. This is sacrificing our whole lives, all that we are and all that we have to God and for God. And this is the worship that is devoted to God alone, that should never be given to a creature, never be given to a saint or an angel or a person or a building or a place or a thing or whatever. This is just given to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is the absolute clear doctrine of basically all Christian traditions. The only difference between, say, the Orthodox doctrine and maybe a Southern Baptist doctrine is about, do the saints even exist? Do we care about the saints? You know, whatever. But for both, both would say, true worship you give to God alone. That's it. So when someone has a picture of a saint on the wall, when someone has a little icon of a saint on their dashboard, whatever it is, that's not because they are praying to that God and worshiping that God. That is just a relationship that they have with that person who died and is still alive with Christ, and they are asking that person's prayers. Does that mean that no one has ever actually worshiped a saint as a demigod? Absolutely not. There are tons of people who actually give Latreia to saints, who consecrate their lives to saints, who worship the saints as demigods. But what this means is that they are leaving the doctrine of all Christian traditions behind. They are radically rejecting the doctrine of the Anglican Church, my church, the Roman Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, basically all Christian traditions, and they are going their own way, doing their own thing. I have certainly met people who had a special relationship with St. Jude or with St. Barbara or with the Blessed Virgin Mary who didn't go to church, who didn't say the Lord's Prayer, who had no interest in Christ. They just felt like they had a relationship with this person who they worshipped and they had statues of and they consecrated their life to without having another out sort of external Christian faith surrounding this. And uh, this is not Christianity. Like, this is worshiping something else. And it is clear from the writings of all the fathers and from the Bible itself that St. Barbara and St. Jude and certainly the Blessed Virgin would be horrified by this and would be praying for that person that their heart would be open to the love of God and not to idolatry. So this is not something the saints want. This is not something any church wants. This is like the opposite of the Christian project, which is to worship God alone. But what about the rosary? What about La Virgen de Guadalupe? What about like all of this devotion in the Eastern Church and the Roman Catholic Church to the Virgin Mary? Isn't that verging on something a bit more like this idolatrous relationship to a saint that's not asking the saint's prayers, but worshiping the saint instead of God. It's not. Even though sometimes it looks like it from the outside, even though for some Christians or people who don't go to church but are crazy about the Virgin Mary, they may be doing that. But in no tradition of the church, be it Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Anglican, no tradition is there this confusion of the Virgin Mary with God himself. And some would want to ask, well, how did this start? 
where did this come from? Like, when did all these churches start venerating Mary as the most important saint, as the queen of heaven, as this really, really important figure? Like, is that a corruption that came into the church at some point? When did the church start venerating Mary? The question actually might be, when did the church stop venerating Mary? Because in a lot of our earliest liturgical documents, we have prayers involving the Virgin Mary. She appears 12 times in the Gospel of Luke. She's mentioned a couple of times in Matthew, once in Mark, a couple of times in John, although not by name. Paul talks about her in Galatians, Christ being born of woman. Mary is this really important figure in the biblical narrative and in the witness of the early church. And not only this, she's really important to the reformers. So Martin Luther, in one of his Christmas sermons, says, The veneration of Mary is inscribed in the very depths of the human heart. He also says, The highest woman and the noblest gem in Christianity after Christ She is nobility, wisdom, and holiness personified. We can never honor her enough. The great reformer Martin Luther. If you look into the works of Calvin, Calvin had this deep reverence for the Blessed Virgin Mary. Zwingli, Mr. Baby Out with the Bathwater, let's toss everything out and start over again, had a huge amount of veneration for the Virgin Mary. It's a very late trend to dismiss her as being unimportant or simply the instrument that God used to bring about the salvation of the world. Instead, for the early church and for really Christians throughout time, the Virgin Mary has been seen as the greatest human of all. And she is the greatest human of all for a couple of reasons. One, the most obvious, is that At the Annunciation, this huge, towering, fearsome angel of light comes to her. So in in almost every other angelic appearance, when an angel appears, people hit the deck in the Old Testament. They're like, I'm going to die now. This is terrifying. But rather than being terrified, Mary listens to the angel. And the first thing he says to her is, Hail Mary, full of grace. Rather than Mary dropping down and trying to worship the angel, the angel actually venerates Mary. It is the angel who is giving Mary greetings of, from a, in a sense, from a lower to a higher. It is the angel who is saying, Mary, you are full of the grace of God. Hail to you. So Mary is venerated by not just the church, but by the angels. And there's an ancient prayer that comes from the East that calls her more glorious than the cherubim and seraphim. Mary is elevated higher, is of more honor, is of more holiness than the angels themselves. And how do we know that? Why do we think that? It's because of what happens next. So the angel gives her this incomprehensible message that the salvation of the world will come through her, that God will be incarnate through her, that the Holy Spirit will come upon her and she will bear a son and he will be the savior of the world. And this is totally inconceivable by any standard. And what does Mary say? She gives this giant yes to God. 
she steps up boldly and says, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. So there have been a few people in the history of the Judeo-Christian tradition to give a big yes to God. You have Abraham, who gives this big yes to God, and he steps out, he leaves Ur, he leaves his family, he leaves Mesopotamia, he goes off into a foreign land, out into the desert, because God has called him. But then a powerful king comes around, and he's telling the king that his wife is actually his sister, in case the king wants to date his wife and won't kill him. He has doubts, he has fears, he acts in ways that are not upstanding. You have someone like Moses, who is called and does all these brave things, but also doesn't want to talk to Pharaoh, refuses to go multiple times, is frustrated by the by the Israelites that he's leading. You have all these different characters in the Old and also the New Testament that do give a, um, a bigger yes to God than I've ever given, or than most of us give, and are, are such heroes of the faith, such as, as Kierkegaard said, these knights of the faith, these great heroic warriors of the faith who give these giant yeses to God, but they're not very sustained yeses often. They're often kind of like uh, vacillating yeses, yes now, maybe not later, which looks a bit more like my yeses to God. But Mary is all in. Her will is 100% open to God. Her heart is 100% open to God. She is the greatest Christian because she gives the greatest yes to God. And not only that, if a Christian is someone who loves Jesus, who loves him more than his mother? She is the archetype of Christian life. She is what it looks like to be permeated with the Holy Spirit, to be a deep lover of Christ. She is the mother of God. She is the greatest human being by any standard. And so it is for all these reasons and more that she has always been venerated by the church as being the greatest of humankind. For the Russian theologian Alexander Schmemann, the world tells this great lie about humankind, this lie that reduces humanity to our base impulses, our anger, our appetites, our hatred of others, our fear of others. There's this lie that the world tells that says that a human being is really just a bunch of these impulses, and that's kind of all we are. The church answers this lie, Schmemann says, by pointing to the image of Mary, the most pure mother of God. The lie continues to pervade the world, but we rejoice because here in the image of Mary, the lie is shown for what it is. The joy of the Annunciation is about the angel's glad tidings, that the people have found grace with God, and that soon, very soon, through her, through this totally unknown Galilean woman, God would begin to fulfill the mystery of the world's redemption. There would be no thunder and no fear in his presence, but he would come to her in the joy and fullness of childhood. Through her, a child will now be a king, a child weak, defenseless, yet through him all the powers of evil are to be forever stripped of their power. 
one of the great scandals of the early church, which I've talked a little bit about before, was Nestorius saying that people should not call the Virgin Mary the Theotokos, the bearer of God, she who bore God, she who gave birth to God, because this was um, incorrect, that she should be called the Anthrotokos, she gave birth to the, the human nature of Christ. But the church responded, no, she gave birth to God, that he who could not be contained by the whole universe was contained within Mary, that he who has all power was dependent on his mother's love and care that the Word of God, that the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, was born without words, an infant, and held in Mary's arms. And so for all these reasons and more, the Church has always venerated the Blessed Virgin Mary, and we ask her prayers. If you are someone who doesn't have a relationship with the saints, if you're someone who doesn't have a relationship with the Virgin Mary, are you still a Christian? Of course, absolutely. It doesn't take a relationship with the saints or the veneration of the saints to be a committed person of faith, to be someone who's committed to Christ. That is totally fine. But it is a rich, ancient part of our tradition that really no one questioned until a few hundred years ago. This is just a normative part of Christianity. It was realizing that we walk through a world surrounded by these holy friends that are cheering for us, that are rooting for us, that are praying for us, and that are waiting for us before the throne of glory. And if you are someone who says, well, yes, they are there, God is not the God of, of the dead, but of the living. Uh, all those who have gone before us, all those Christians who have entered into the kingdom, of course, they are praying for us. They are rooting for us. But I just want to spend all my time focused on Christ. There is nothing wrong with that. But if you're ever tempted to judge others because they seem to be very concerned with asking the prayers of saints, well, What they're doing has really been done by Christians for the last couple thousand years, and there's also nothing wrong with that. Thank you for joining me and spending a little time exploring the history of Christian theology, the history of Christianity. I've been on a bit of a hiatus the past couple of months. This is a busy time in the church year, but I'm excited to be back in the saddle again.